Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Welcome back as we head into hour three. I don't know if prime minister's elections in Europe bode general good or ill or not, if they bode the beginning of a trend or suffusion, or if they are just particular to local habitations and places. Clearly, something was happening in the world, though, and toward what would become the end of the Cold War with the elections of Menachem Begin and Margaret Thatcher and the rise in prominence of a pope at the Vatican and the Lech Walesa labor movement in Poland that all coalesced to further the ideological opposition to communism and terrorism represented by the also ascendant election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. We haven't really seen anything like that since, though we have seen fits and starts, as in the prime ministerships of Spain and Italy in the early 2000s or aughts. And perhaps the Brexit vote in 2016 is an early indicator for the Trump election later that year here. Today, there is much excitement and, of course, transnational progressive condemnation of Italy's election of Georgia Maloney from over the weekend. It's hard to know how much of a harbinger for good or ill this will be, how much of a harbinger for a return to freedom or doubling down on socialism this will be, how much the far-right narrative will be proven or disproven. It's hard to analyze much these days when socialism or fascism are conflated, much less how fascism and socialism are conflated with being far right. In 1864, Abraham Lincoln delivered a speech in Maryland saying the world has never had a good definition of the word freedom and is much now or was much then in need of one. I'm not sure if it ever took hold, though he did a great thing in that speech, giving a great speech. But centers and definitions do not hold. We used to know what freedom was. We used to know what equality was. We've had countless books, seminars, pamphlets, columns, essays, and public leadership dedicated to all of that, including actual and violent wars. Still, we find ourselves needing to redound to first and previously learned and absorbed principles and definitions all the time, don't we? Today is but one of about a million possible examples. The new definition of equality requires in the mind, teaching, and book of the most prominent scholar on racism in America that it embraces equality, past discrimination, present discrimination, and requires future discrimination. To get equality, you must discriminate. That, to him, is how to achieve equality. I say to him, but he is teaching reams of other scholars, students, political leaders, institutions, corporate consultants, and CEOs. And they are all happily sopping and soaking up his torrents. Where once, not too long ago, political leaders, would-be political leaders, tried to sidle up to and embrace the commitment to life, The silence on that issue is deafening, and the political leadership class feels like it is on the run or should go into hiding. 
where once there were proudly pro-life Democrats with names you'd well recognize and that were well recognized in and of themselves, names like George McGovern and Edmund Muskie and Hubert Humphrey and Bob Casey, they have died out. Where once safe, legal and rare was the Democratic Party line on abortion, it is now unfettered, legal at any point and celebrated. And an article of faith that would bar Democrats from McGovern to Humphrey, nominees heading the Democratic Party for president of the United States, from even speaking at Democratic Party conventions, as happened to Bob Casey Sr. So it turns out not only do we need definitions for words like liberty again, we need definitions for words like life. With such a problem in our constitutional and civic vocabulary, with such revisionist national dictionaries, it's not surprising or should not be surprising that words like extremism or phrases like far right or fascism are lost to a lingua franca, lost to the Humpty Dumpty of our times, who, as Lewis Carroll instructed, put it this way. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in rather a scornful tone, It means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, who is to be master? That is all. This is the argument many can recognize from Plato's Republic in the dialogue with Thrasymachus, who says justice is nothing more than the power of the strongest person. In other words, might makes right. Abraham Lincoln, always trying to fix our perverted national dictionary, would put it this way in his campaign for the presidency in 1860, quote, let us have faith that right makes might. And in that faith, let us to the end dare to do our duty as we understand it. And as we know, political leadership can and does change the meaning of words, the proper meaning of words. George Orwell warned about it, and today you get perversions of things like what a riot is, or what silence is, or what action is, or what a protest is, or what peaceful means, or what insurrection means, or what inflation means. What's a closed border in today's Democratic Party? What does a closed border mean to Democrats? What does it mean to Republicans? Two different things. What a vaccine is and what armed violence means. You get changed meanings of what a white supremacist is, and you get changed meaning of what a man and a woman are. Everything from current verbs and nouns to the essence of what our nature is seems up for grabs these days. And it is solely dependent and reliant on power, not reason and not agreement and not consensus. Arbitrary power. No surprise then that the words fascist and right wing are tossed around so easily, be it in the context of today's Republican Party in America or the election of Georgia Maloney in Italy. There are any number of ways to better understand all this, as, say, almost every scholar in and on these topics used to understand all this. One columnist recently put it this way, quote, there's a, there's a very simple way to think about this. Think of political philosophy as a line with a right and left direction. One side wants a government that does more, that grows in size and scope, and the other wants one with a shrinking, smaller government, doing less. Where do all those isms fall on the spectrum? They all feature massive government taxing the heck out of everyone, mandating behavior and regulating lives. There are other ways, including understanding that Nazi, the word Nazi, is a contraction or acronym for National Socialism. 
There are ways that we used to understand but have been put down the Orwellian memory hole, including Franklin Delano Roosevelt's and his brain trusts praising of Benito Mussolini's programs as they worked on deploying and crafting the New Deal in the United States. It's no accident of history, but rather a culmination of it, that Franklin Roosevelt's vice president, one Henry Wallace, would later reveal himself to be a literal socialist, with the Atlantic Monthly magazine calling him in 1947, quote, too cozy with the Kremlin, close quote. Today, we just passed the words right-wing extremists or fascism onto anything perceived not part of the modern Democratic Party's belief system. This is why the chairman of the DNC can say the Republican Party is a party of fascism and fear. This is why the president of the United States can claim the Republican Party is a party of semi-fascism consisting of dangerous extremists. This is why Stephen Miller is indubitably correct in writing that, quote, the legacy media can't print Georgia Maloney's name unless they proceed it with the phrase far right. Meanwhile, not once will they say far left Biden as he pushes child sterilization, racial discrimination and border annihilation. So let's look at this far right fascist Prime Minister Maloney. Here's a speech she gave a couple of years ago answering the question as to what she believes when it comes to the notion of family. She is saying this in Italian. It's all over Twitter and it's trending both positively and obviously with wrung hands very negatively. She says, why is the family the enemy? Why is the family so scary? There is only one answer to all these questions. Because it defines us, because it is our identity, because everything that defines us is now an enemy to those who want us to no longer have an identity and be merely complete consumer slaves. And so they attack national identity. They attack religious identity. They attack gender identity. They attack family identity. I can't define myself, Italian, Christian, female, mother, no, I must be citizen X, gender X, parent one, parent two. I must be a number because why I'm only a number when I have no identities or roots left, I will be a complete slave at the mercy of financial speculators and a perfect consumer. But we will defend it. We will protect God. We will protect the country and we will protect the family. The things that people so detest, we will do it to protect our freedom because we will never be slaves and simple consumers at the mercy of financial speculators, close quote. That attack there at the end on financial speculators and trying to divorce them from the state apparatus of progressivism and alliances would be the opposite of fascism traditionally or originally understood, whereby the state would coerce and co-opt the financial industries and corporations for their messaging, usage, and control, making them an apparatus of the state, if not an adjunct of the Democratic Party. That is what is being done now by the Democratic Party, not conservatives, not the Republican Party, and not, evidently, Georgia Maloney in Italy. God, country, family. Those are her watchwords of concern. In a better day, Douglas MacArthur spoke easily of duty on I'm sorry, let me start that sentence again. In a better day, Douglas MacArthur could speak easily of duty, honor, and country. 
Aristotle, long before that, envisioned first country, then family. And the notion of God, country, and family being our forces of composition would raise zero eyebrows around the same time here in America that Henry Wallace was raising all kinds of eyebrows. We were a better place then. I mean, consider... How would the notion of God or country or family ward off the likes of a Norman Rockwell or would it define his very art and his popularity in the first place? Of course, when Ronald Reagan would mention those things or their opposites in the evil empire, he would be lambasted. But it turns out reams of social science, as well as every page of our history up until about 10 years ago, would recognize the greatest moments in America, as well as the greatest social movements in America, were dedicated or based on just that trilogy, God, country, and family. To this day, we still know families matter, and perhaps, when controlling for every other factor, define the levels of social success or failure in near precise proportion to those who fall outside that success or worse, engage in social failure or destruction. Abolition of the family is how the revolution starts. That's in direct quotes with an exclamation point where chapter two of Karl Marx's communist manifesto, abolition of the family. Read it. I'm not saying people who believe this are deliberately quoting Karl Marx, though many, many may very well be. I will remind that the BLM movement was a self-avowed Marxist organization and that one of its planks was to, quote, disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure, close quote. But again, I don't assume for a moment most progressives know their history or read, actually read works of Karl Marx's, but rather go along with notions they think they are supposed to, to be hip, to be with it, to be, well, progressive, to be against the man, to be anti-conservative. Marx liked to say everything successful must be destroyed. And to borrow from Michael Novak, there is literally no better department of health, education, or welfare than the committed two-parent family. So, of course, it must go in our modern dispensation. And, of course, anyone who thinks otherwise, like Georgia Maloney, must be marginalized or condemned. She is, after all, not a Marxist. She must, therefore, be something, a throwback, antediluvian, unreconstructed, not a transnational progressive, not modern. She must be backward. And backward is the opposite of progressive. So, so if she is not a progressive, she must be thus a fascist. Making her Italian makes it all the more easy. Once upon a time, there was a space between fascism and Marxism. There was a place to stand. Harry Truman stood there. Winston Churchill stood there. John Kennedy stood there. Barry Goldwater stood there. It might have been called the Defense of the West. It might even have been called uniquely American. But that special thing called America has been rewritten and taught to be not a soothing agent, not a better way, not something of wonderful accomplishment, not a bastion of freedom and enterprise and equality, something that stands between the twin evils of Marxism and fascism. Not exceptional. Something ungreat. And for now, 
calling American values or Western values like faith and patriotism and family good things, well, that will get you lumped into something we went to wars with in order to destroy. Welcome to the new world of the new language and the new ethos. I say, Prime Minister Maloney, go get him. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by my friends over at Y-Refi. If you're looking for a remarkable investment opportunity, check Y-Refi out. They are offering a fixed, no-load interest rate up to 10.25% return for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio. Y-Refi is a due diligence-approved firm made up of investors who do well by doing good for others. You can check them out if you want to be a part of it to investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com, investyrefi.com. Or give them a call at 855-316-3087, 855-316-3087. Having uh, delivered the monologue I just did, Forgive me, uh, the sniffles, an allergen came through here. I'm fine. It was just a temporary allergy. Anyway, uh, hope, sorry for the distraction of it. But for those of you that ask, well, where can we go to learn about Karl Marx and the Communist Manifesto and these things you keep talking about, Leaps in Chapter 2? You can get it all online. I do, I do, I, I do encourage you to read it. Um, it's, it's, it's an odd thing. In, um, in studying political science, as much, I guess, as in studying literature these days and history, that we get in school readers or we get excerpts in textbooks. We don't do a lot of original or source material. Uh, I think we've come to the point where we should read exclusively original and source material. Um, the textbooks too often use ellipses. They take out the pregnant, poignant, and important parts. How many of you, for example, have ever had a civics or political or history textbook that actually quoted from Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto the parts I read, the parts about his support for the abolition of the family, or how he talks about the use of social education to accomplish that? You don't see those excerpts. You don't see them. But you know where they exist? They exist in the hearts and in the minds and in the postulates of the people who are efforting the progressive agenda. They believe all that. They know all that. It's important that we do, too. A lot of this comes to us as new. I get that. A lot of us never had to spend time in the trenches understanding Marx or understanding Mussolini or even reading or understanding Mein Kampf or Hitler. But it's important. You know what we say here often. It couldn't be said here enough. You may not be interested in political philosophy, but, damn it, it sure as heck is interested in you. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. There's a lot of racists. Some of them get described up and down ballot. I've never liked 
uh, that phraseology up and down ballot because it's all important. It's all important. Certainly the other side understands that and understands that well. One of those uh, races, one of those elections for people in this area particular, particularly is the Central Arizona Water Conservation District. It's a mouthful. The Central Arizona Water Conservation District. And you may have seen some signs for Corey Michigan, uh, someone I support, uh, a candidate I support for this office. It is a delight to bring him on to the show, Corey Michigan. Corey, welcome back to the show. Oh, actually, welcome to the show for the first time. My fault. For the first time, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. You bet. And uh, for people that want to learn more about you or help out your campaign, let me give your website, Corey for Cap. Dot com. Corey spells his name C-O-R-Y, Corey for cap dot com. Corey, first-time guest. I do this all the time with first-time guests. Tell the audience a little bit about yourself, just your own autobiography, as, uh, as much or as little as you want to say. Well, uh, we, we could probably spend a lot of time talking about that. But uh, <laughs> so my, my background, I, I was born and raised here, uh, been, been around Arizona uh, real estate and uh, agriculture my whole life. Uh, one side of the family, we had a uh, cattle feedlot and a cotton farm. The other side of the family uh, had some golf courses that they had done uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Um, so kind of been around that and water issues uh, relating to those kinds of things. And then uh, came in and uh, joined the family curse of real estate. And <laughs> I sell, sell homes. My brother and I are partners in a, in a small real estate brokerage. And, uh, and been involved in, in local Republican politics for a long time uh, as a district chair and as a treasurer, ran for county leadership as well, and uh, just always kind of had a passion for, for service. And, and I believe that, you know, that's kind of our civic duty, right, is to, to serve our community, make it better. And I think that's what we as conservatives do a really good job of. Well, my hat's off to you for doing it and staying in the fight and staying in the struggle. Uh, also, on things that you know don't always get the most sexiest of headlines and the most prominence of coverage, like um, offices for Central Arizona Water Conservation District. Tell us what this office is for those of us who are uninitiated to it. Yeah, so for the uninitiated, first and foremost, this is the board that oversees the Central Arizona Project, which is what brings all of the water from the Colorado into Central Arizona. So uh, it was created in the 1970s as part of the trade-off, 1970s and 80s, as part of the trade-off to get the federal government to pay for the infrastructure of building the aqueduct to bring all of that water here. Uh, Arizona, the legislature, cut a deal to basically leverage all of Maricopa County, Pinal County, and Pima County to pay back the federal government for that. So it oversees... Uh, depending on the year, anywhere between eight and twelve cents per thousand dollars of property taxes. So, so at its core, it's uh, a board of citizens overseeing a government entity and its budget. Um, but I think much more than that, it's also uh, you know, helping foster good water policy and making sure that we maintain that infrastructure and that we deliver cost-effective water to central Arizona. Corey Michigan is our guest. Thank you for that, Corey. So is this election, this race you're in for Central Arizona Water Conservation District, how localized a race is it? What does it cover? What does it embrace? Is it Maricopa County? Is it district level? How is it broken down? So 
all of Maricopa County. So okay. there, there's 15 seats on this board, rotates every every two years, so it's a six-year term. Okay. And for those, uh, so this year it's five seats in Maricopa County that are up, uh, and they're, it's the most people that have ever run in the history. We have 14 people wow. that are running five Democrats, one independent, eight Republicans. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. so compete, so people would vote for more than one candidate. You, you can vote for up to five, up to five. Perfect. Let me do this real quick, Corey. I have a, this was a short segment. We'll have a longer one on the other side of this commercial break. Let me take that quick commercial break. We'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about water policy. It seems to be everywhere now. I don't remember a campaign or an election season where I've seen water policy more discussed and more debated. Um, we'll ask Corey Michigan if that's uh, because we're heading towards crisis or if it's a good thing or a bad thing. In any event, we'll be right back with Corey Michigan. Again, you want to learn more about him or help his candidacy out? CoreyForCap.com. Corey is C-O-R-Y. C-O-R-Y-F-O-R-C-A-P.com. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Balance of Nature. Good folks who make a great product. I take it every single day, 100% natural. Natural what? A blend of 16 whole fruits and 15 whole vegetables using their unique cold press process to preserve all the phytonutrients. It is pure, potent plant power, 100% natural, nothing added, no preservatives, no sweeteners, no sugars of any kind, no colors. You're just getting good stuff, 100%, not 99 and 44 100s, 100% to boost your energy, your health, your immunity. You can check it out at balanceofnature.com. They're fruits and veggies. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Corey Mishkin is my guest. He's a candidate for Central Arizona Water Conservation District, CoreyForCap.com, C-O-R-Y-F-O-R-C-A-P, CoreyForCap.com is his website. Corey, uh, as I was mentioning towards the break in the last segment, I've never seen uh, or heard so much discussion about water policy in a campaign as I have this year. Uh, at any number of in any number level of races, whether it's uh, the governor's race, whether it's the Senate race, House race, people are talking about water in Arizona. Are we reaching um, are we reaching a crucial point? Are we at an inflection point? Are we in a crisis? What's the water situation and what do you want to do about it in either event? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a lot in the media right now that we're seeing and uh, if you if you turn on the TV or if you open up the Arizona Republic and read, it, you know you, you think that we should probably sell our houses and move somewhere else. <laughs> right, there is uh, some of that. Yes, yes, right. Uh, but but the reality is, Arizona has had good sound water policy for a long, long time. Uh, the statistic I like to share the most comes from the Arizona Department of Water Resources, which says today we're using the same amount of water as we did in 1957 as a state. Wow. So if you just hit pause for a second and think about that, here we are. We've gone from under a million people to almost, what, 8 million people in the state, and we're still using the same amount of water. The same portions of water go to cities and towns and industrial use and agriculture as they did in 1957. So we're still using kind of on the same ratios. We've just gotten more efficient at, at doing it. And when the CAP opened, 
and we started bringing all of that water that we could use from the Colorado into central Arizona, Governor, Governor Fife Symington, in kind of a stroke of brilliance, and I'm sure some really smart people around him, they started taking that full allotment of water and pumping billions and billions of gallons of water every single year back underground into our aquifer so that we could make sure that we were ready not for the rainy day, but for a day like today. And and we've done a really good job of lowering our flow rates on our houses and incentivizing our farmers to get more efficient. We're growing more food than we ever have. Arizona is the number two exporter of fresh vegetables in the country. And, and we do all of these things with really sound water management. So while we can always do better, the reality is we need to get areas, um, we, you know, we, we need to take away the fear. I always say if a politician couldn't create a crisis they already had a solution to, how would they get you to vote? For yeah, them? that's right. And, and and I think people are using this because it's scary if you think that your tap's going to go dry. Mm-hmm. But 30% of our wa- less than 30% of our water gets used in cities and towns, the rest gets used for agriculture, and our farmers do a really good job of making sure they use that water efficiently. Um, you know, and if you looked at the numbers of how much dairy we produce and how much, you know, all the all the stuff that we export around the world or around the world and around the country, you'd be shocked to know what kind of economic engine that is. Um, but then you look at the innovation of somewhere like the Arizona Biltmore Golf Club that's tearing out their Bermuda grass and putting in a new hybrid that uses 40% less water. Okay. Um, so, it's you know, I think with this position, it's not about, you know, we, we look at some more liberal state. Well, I don't want to use the word liberal, but we look at some of the more leftist states. And what they do is they say, you can't water on this day, you can't water on that day. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that we need to come up with innovation and come up with, with solutions rather than, you know, being the nanny state and telling people what they can and can't do, show them the way. And, and I think for me, what I'm excited to do, and, and I'm willing to use this as the soapbox to, to call out the hypocrisy of, of that great state to the left of us, both socially and politically, that talks about how environmentally friendly they are and they do nothing to, to, to conserve water and they take no cuts while they expect us to take it on the chin. And you know, it's just time that we as conservatives take back that, that conversation on environmentalism. I mean, we're conservatives. We know how to conserve. We know how to do much with little. And, and that's what makes us successful. And, um, you know, we just, we need to start taking those narratives back and, and saying how we're great at this and why we're great at it. That's that's music to my ears and no doubt many listeners, Corey Michigan. Do we then need to think about our efforts with regard to other states and getting our fair share? Or do we need to think about other sources beyond the Colorado? Is it mostly just a management of efficiency? What are the next steps you would look to accomplishing going forward? So I think... You know, on our fair share side of things, I think it's important. I don't mind being a good neighbor and when times are tough, cinching up my belt and going into lean times together. I think you and I can both remember in our lifetime that the reservoirs were about to overflow and yep. we thought we were going to lose right. the dams. Right. You know, and, and now 20 years later, they're as low as they've ever been since we started filling them up. So Mother Nature's fickle that way. Mm-hmm. And there'll be there'll be 
great rain years and there'll be tough rain years. But if we need to go back with our congressional delegation and renegotiate this Colorado River Compact because it was built on assumptions of how much water was in the river system rather than saying, hey, California, you get this percentage. Nevada, you get that percentage. Arizona, you get this percentage. They said, oh, California, you get... You get three and a half million acre feet no matter what, and another million acre feet if you can use it. Well, we need to go back to a percentage ratio. We have the technology to know how much water comes in the system. And instead of overtaxing it, I mean, if you and I just spent more money than we had, uh, eventually we'd be bankrupt. But if we were good conservatives and we saved some money and then spent what we could afford to spend, and it's the same approach on the, the river, back to a system or get to a system that allows people to spend what's actually there, not what they think could have, should have, would have been there. And and then on the other sources, again, it's going to innovation and saying, hey, what about desalinization mm-hmm. in a place like Yuma that has brackish water yeah. so that they can use their groundwater more effectively? They have a desalinization plant that happens to be very, very old and inefficient. What about that? And then can we have, is it possible to have trade-offs with Yuma to leave more water in the reservoir because they can use that for drinking water? Or is there a scenario where we can get the Gila River Indians together with the Colorado River Indians and allow the Colorado River Indian community to bring some of their water through the reservoir system uh, that they can't use up on, you know, up on their reservation in northern Arizona? So there's, there's other sources out there that we need to work with solutions there's a lot of stakeholders, and it's, it's balancing everybody's interest to make sure that we can all all work with what is a scarce resource, but it's renewable, and we need to leave water in those reservoirs so we have power because I don't know about you, but when it's 115 degrees, I like to have electricity, and there's no cheaper, more efficient electricity than what comes out of, uh, out of Glen Canyon and Hoover Dam. Well, Corey, I've I've seen your signs around town, and I thought I'm hearing so much about water these days. I had to get you on. I, of course, knew you from being the chairman of uh, my Republican legislative district at one point. And you've made water interesting, and I love that we're not running around with our hair on fire here, and you're here to calm the waters as well, so to speak. So, Corey Mishkin, let this be a down payment. Uh, Anytime something's in the news on this, reach out, let us know. And uh, let me give uh, your website out one more time, uh, CoreyForCap.com, C-O-R-Y-F-O-R-C-A-P.com. Corey, I hope this will be the first of many future visits. Thank you so much, Seth. You betcha. My pleasure. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be back with a closing thought. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, and thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us. If you missed my uh, monologue, you can get uh, get it. I did it at the beginning of this hour. You can get it as you can get everything we do at 960thepatriot.com. I made reference to an Abraham Lincoln speech in it, 1864, a speech at the Sanitation Fair in Maryland. Um, and uh, I was saying how he, he said the world has never had a good definition of the word liberty, and I, I haven't used that quote in a long time. It's a beauty And I thought I'd close with it. He said the world had never had a good definition of the word liberty and the American people just now are much in want of one. We all declare for liberty, but in using the same word, we do not all mean the same thing. With some, 
The word liberty may mean for each man to do as he pleases with himself and the product of his labor, while with others, the same word may mean for some men to do as they please with other men and the product of other men's labor. Here are two not only different but incompatible things called by the same name, liberty. And it follows that each of the things is by the respective parties called by two different and incompatible names, liberty and tyranny. He then goes off on a wonderful analogy and example about sheeps and wolves, and I would wish that um, you spend some time reading it if you're further and so inclined. But that is what we are facing today with using the same words and meaning different things. When the liberal uses or a leftist uses the word peaceful, it doesn't mean the same thing to us as we might think of it more as a riot or violence. Heck, we used to think man and women were settled definitions. We all use those phrases, those words, but they don't mean the same thing. Well, let me just submit to you it's not we who have been going along changing the dictionary and trying to engage in one of man's oldest faiths, which is being as gods and changing nature. That's what Marxists do. Beware of it. And don't hesitate to call it out for what it is. Know what you're talking about, but don't hesitate to call it out for what it is, as we try to do here every day. And thus, until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson. Class is dismissed.